This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, October 7th, and we're talking about another hot tech IPO. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com Senior Technology Specialist, Evan New. Evan, how's it going? Pretty good. Pretty Happy good. Friday. Happy Friday. Things are looking pretty rosy over at Nutan- uh, Nutanix, huh? Yeah, it's been, uh, so today has been a week. <laughs> uh, like last week, I talked to David Kretzman about recently public Twilio. Today's show, Evan and I are going to break down another tech company that recently went public, Nutanix. Uh, give you guys a little rundown on what they do, how their books look, maybe a couple things to keep in mind with their business. How's that sound, Evan? Sounds good. So shares originally priced at 16 bucks. They are currently trading in the mid-30s, so the stock is up over 100% since they hit the markets. I think the biggest thing most people are wondering is, like, what the heck does Nutanix do, Evan? Yeah, no one's no one's like heard of this company before. <laughs> and yeah, they're at like 38 bucks now, so they're up again today. It's been a pretty wild week. They've been up and down like quite a bit each day, just because you know IPOs are always volatile. But yeah, I mean, um, so Nutanix they they take servers and storage and virtualization and integrate these all into one platform. Uh, so it's basically an IT infrastructure play, whereas these things are normally separate. So companies that usually have to get this stuff from different companies, they all use different operating systems. It's inefficient. It's more expensive. Um, so yeah, their, their whole thing is to basically just integrate all these things into one platform. And you'll often hear them described as a hyperconvergence company. And that term hyperconvergence kind of gets at that, right? You're taking all of these um, kind of disparate you know, things that are delivered and managed kind of separately in the past and bring them together in a more efficient way. Right, exactly. And then, you know, so it helps really improve data center performance. Um, and they're, they've been kind of one of the pioneers in this kind of hyper-converged data center area. Um, so, yeah, people are obviously excited about that. <laughs> and their current customer list kind of ranges the whole spectrum. We have Nintendo, we have Nordstrom. I think the Department of Defense is also a customer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they got like Total, Toyota, Activision, Best Buy. They have about 3,800 customers. Um, which is about two years ago, they only had about seven or eight hundred. So, the, just in terms of the number of customers they have, it's definitely grown a lot. And I think, and I think you see that reflected in what's going on with the top line. So, looking at growth over the past few years, it's been fairly impressive. Uh, sales have jumped. Let's see, ninety percent from twenty fourteen to twenty fifteen, uh, and now eighty five percent from twenty fifteen to twenty sixteen. Their twenty sixteen fiscal year ended in July, so we're looking at a full year there, uh, and that puts them at uh, four hundred and forty five million in uh, in revenue for twenty sixteen. Not bad. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really hard to argue with those those growth figures because they're they're putting up the numbers, you know, especially up top. I think one of the things that um, you kind of want to keep in mind, you'll see a couple different numbers cited with them. Uh, they have a non-GAAP number called billings. And so, you know, we talk about their top line and their revenue. That's Revenue is what they're able to recognize as sales. Billings is money they've collected. Some of that will be recognized as revenue. Some of that is going to be categorized as deferred revenue. And um, that is something that will eventually be recognized um, later right. on. Right. Yeah, most of these... Um subscription software service companies uh they a lot of companies generally use this billings thing which is basically revenue plus or minus the change in deferred revenue 
Uh, and in this case, you know, so Nutanix, they, you know, the revenue is broken down in, into uh, product and then like service and support. And the product is like the physical boxes that they sell to have, have the hardware plus the software. Uh, and alternatively, they could all, they also sell just the software. If the customer already has like a qualified server and has the hardware already, they can just buy the software. So product revenue is basically just those products, which is the, the two product families, Acropolis and Prism. But then the service revenue is basically just, um, you know, after purchase support. And that's where the majority of their deferred revenue is coming from. Um, and, that so make, that, and that makes that, sense. It's actually a little bit different from like, I, I, I shouldn't have characterized it as like software as a service because they're definitely not like, the majority of the revenue is not like this is a subscription type stuff. Um, but they have about $300 million of deferred revenue on the balance sheet right now. Which is a pretty healthy backlog because yeah, that will get recognized over time, and most of that is related to service and support. And you talk about the two different types of revenue they have. It makes sense that a kind of support and maintenance type revenue stream is going to be the thing that would be recognized over a period of time uh, rather than upfront all at once, because typically those are contracts that are ranging from one to five years in uh, right. for their business. Uh, to give you an idea of the mix there, it used to be about a 90-10 uh, split with uh, the product and then support and other services revenue. Now it's a little closer to 80-20. So you are seeing that rise over time. And I think that you'll probably see the gap between billings and revenue, you know, kind of continue to spread out a little bit as that becomes a larger part of their business. Yeah, I think it makes sense too, because, you know, as, as the customer base grows, those customers, the large number of people that just need support. So, I mean, that service segment is probably going to be growing as a percentage of sales going forward, I would expect. Yeah. One of the things that really popped out to me looking at their numbers was profit margins climbed pretty steadily over the last three years. Uh, we've seen 52% in 2014. Now they're up to 61.6%. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I think what we're seeing is just operating leverage, um, especially, um, you know, I don't think this is a company that has a lot of like high capital costs. So if you don't have a lot of fixed costs, then operating leverage really kicks in as, as your revenue base grows larger just because you got to spread out those costs over a larger uh, base, then you you, know, you see margin expansion. Uh, so yeah, I think that's what we're seeing there, which is you know, helps explain why their margin just keeps expanding as they grow a lot. Yeah, the year-over-year -year gains might not be as dramatic as we get into 2017, 2018, but there might be some upside there. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think if they keep growing their their top line, their margins will keep expanding. At least in the gross margin front. I mean, obviously they operate at a loss just because they're investing so heavily in the business. But as far as the gross margin goes, I would I would definitely expect that to keep going up if they can keep ramping the top line. Yeah, looking at their bottom line now, they registered a net loss of 166 million for this most recently closed fiscal year. Um, a big reason for that is the company's sales and marketing costs. Those were up 79% year over year, hitting $288 million. Uh, that item single-handedly erased the company's gross profit, which is pretty incredible. Not terribly surprising, because right. that, that's kind of how it works in the tech that's, space, right? Yeah, as far for the course for any of these high-growth, small tech companies in Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah, well, and a lot of that stock-based comp. Yeah, that, that plays in there, too. Um, well, we're going to take a little bit of a look at some of the competitors in the space, and um, just kind of some other things to keep in mind with Nutanix. But before we do, this episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. If you've ever bought a home, then you already know how frustrating and time-consuming getting a mortgage can be. Rocket Mortgage brings the approval process into the 21st century by taking all the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. 
Even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do it all on your phone or tablet. So if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. So, Evan, I think to help contextualize this business a little bit, it might make sense to look at some of the other players in the space and how they stack up. Um, it and looks the risks and, stuff. <laughs> and some of the risks, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, looking through their prospectus, they break out their competitors in three different categories. You have your software providers, folks more like VMware and Red Hat, and those are people that are typically offering kind of a range of things in the virtualization, infrastructure, and management product space. And that's looking at um, enterprise cloud type work. Then you have traditional IT vendors, uh, Hewlett Packard, um, Cisco, IBM, and that's kind of more in the integrated systems. You're looking at bundles of servers, storage, network solutions, that type of stuff. Uh, and then the traditional storage array vendors. So Dell, Hitachi, they name a couple others, and they're typically selling centralized storage products. Then they also have people that work in hyper-converged infrastructure, which is kind of this more nascent field. There, there are a lot of different people trying to grab a share of this market, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one, probably just the biggest risk here is that there's just so much competition. Like, this is, you know, they, they've kind of helped pioneer this idea, but at the same time, this is, a, like, the IT infrastructure market is huge. Like, and as you mentioned, like, some of these companies that we're talking about are gigantic. And, like... You know, going up against these really large and established companies you know, that have a ton of money that can really outspend you in every way in terms of R&D, marketing, they have existing customers, et cetera. Like, it's tough. You know, it's an uphill battle. I mean, they've done pretty well. I mean, you can't argue with the growth that they're putting up, but, you know, that's just a couple of years. And, I mean, once these big companies get their act together with kind of, like, coming in on this space, like, they could really take a bite out of Nutanix. And just because Nutanix helped carve out this hyper-converged kind of niche part of the data center market doesn't mean they can keep it all. And it's very possible that these larger companies will look to replicate what they're doing, particularly since some of their rivals are also their partners. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, kind of an interesting dynamic. You want to explain that a little bit? Yeah, like, you know, so they, they sell their products through resellers, distributors, and OEMs. And, and can you define OEM for listeners? Uh, original equipment manufacturer, so people just kind of make their things and and sell them to to their own customers. So, Dell and Lenovo are two of their biggest OEM partners, and they're also two of their biggest competitors. So, you know, I mean, and I mean that this isn't new either for this kind of space. Like, there's lots of times when we see this kind of thing, like Riverbed and F5. You know, there's all these other companies in the past that had this kind of same competitive dynamic where they're competing with the people that are their partners. And, you know, that's pretty normal. It's co-optition or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, it's just a big risk because it, what if those people decide to, like, really come in here and just replicate it and then they can cut them out pretty easily? You know, so it's you know, it's a tough space. And, you know, generally speaking, I, I think also it's good. You know, I think at The Fool, we, we kind of, we're kind of fans of the whole idea that you should really have a good understanding of the business you're investing in. And Nutanix is just an extremely technical company to understand. And... I'd even consider that a risk for individual investors. Just just because, because you won't be able to see some of these signals that things are either yeah, going very well exactly. or going very poorly. Because you need to really understand the company, the business, what they do, and also the market dynamics. Because, I mean, the IT infrastructure market changes so quickly and you need to be able to keep up. And if you if you can't keep up with, ha- with what's happening, you know, on a technical 
side, then it's hard to invest in something. Like I've I've made IT infrastructure plays that didn't work out before just because, you know, some of these again, like these companies are hard to follow and things change just so fast. And if you're you can get caught off guard really quickly, you know, if you're not really paying a lot of attention. Yeah, I mean we both cover the tech space pretty regularly and I think it took us both uh a decent amount of homework to really get down to the nuts and bolts of this company. You know, it, it took some time, it took some serious reading. Um, and, you know, for the average investor, that might not be something that they're interested in doing. Um, any other risks that you notice aside from things in the competitive space? Uh, there's another one that's not really uncommon, but it's just the insider control piece. Because, you know, they're another one of these companies in Silicon Valley that's doing this dual class thing. So, the, you know, Class A shares, which people can buy, like the public can buy, get one vote. And then Class B shares, which are only held by insiders, get 10 votes per share. So they have the super voting class, and Class B shares control 99% of the voting power. So insiders, again, kind of just keep all control of themselves. The economic rights are the same, but, you know, public investors should have no illusions of being able to influence the company in any way. Uh, again, this isn't, like, uncommon, like, Tons of companies do this. Google does this is the big one, but pretty much all these tech companies, any new tech company basically does this. And Facebook, <laughs> which is really annoying. <laughs> Facebook went to a stock split in order to enable this to continue to happen, right? So yeah, I mean, yeah, this yeah, is exactly. this is kind of industry standard in tech. Uh, I will say, I'll maybe play devil's advocate a little bit here. That can be seen as a positive thing, uh, so long as you like the management team that's in place and and you think that they have the right vision for the company, right? Because then they're basically given full control and um, and the clout to make the decisions, you know, sometimes maybe a little bit more long-term oriented and um, taking some short-term hits to position the company for success. Yeah, I mean, you, you just have to have faith in, in leadership and in management. And it, I mean, it's just frustrating because I, I just don't like how it's become such like an accepted thing that everyone does. Like on principle, it just bothers me in terms of just corporate governance. You know, like, <laughs> like, like, yeah, I, there's, it's fine in a lot of cases because, you know, you do believe in the company's leadership, but just on principle, it bothers me just because it's like, come on guys, like he, ne- it's just, it's just a really shareholder unfriendly thing to do and everyone does it. Yeah. Well, it's become commonplace though. Yeah. yeah. Um, they can get away with it. So right now with a market cap of roughly 5.3 billion, I checked right before we started recording the oh. show. The company is currently trading at about 12 times fiscal 2016 sales, so not cheap by any means. Um, it seems like, in a lot of ways, this is the type of company where if you aren't really gung-ho on it and you don't understand the space well, you're probably better served sitting on the sidelines. Yeah, it just kind of gets back to that whole technical thing. It's just so hard to really... Because, you know, you really you should be get digging in and really understanding the inner workings of how these how the products work and... If you can't do that, it's hard to really want to invest, you know, I mean, to at least feel responsible about buying it because I would have bought a company I didn't understand. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're and you're doing it at a very expensive valuation, right? So yeah, you're yeah, going to subject yourself to a lot of swings. And they're super expensive. And, 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 and again, like all IPOs, within like the first six months of any IPO is basically the Wild West. Like I would, I basically never buy any IPO in the first six months just because things are so volatile, like... Up and down. I mean, like, think about all the recent tech IPOs. Like, they they're just they're just they're just wild, and you can't really. And that, that, I mean, that's why IPOs are technically classified as speculative investments. Like, if you've ever like point. tried to buy an IPO from like your broker, you have to fill out this whole survey 
And if you and, and like you know in that survey, it's kind of the expected kind of questions like what's your investment objective, kind of stuff like all that standard questionnaire. Mm-hmm. And if you if you do not click speculative as like one of your goals, they won't let you invest in it. Like <laughs> like you have to know that it's extremely. I mean, this applies to all IPOs, you know. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, the strong performance so far is definitely good news for the broader tech IPO market. Yeah, that was uh, actually that was one thing I wanted to touch on kind of before we wrapped up was you look at the successful IPOs of Twilio and Nutanix over the past few months. I think it might be interesting to see if some of the companies, some of the unicorns kind of sitting on the sidelines right now might decide to test line, the waters. Too, line, line came out recently. Oh, Line, right. Yeah, that's another one. Um, you know, we, we saw news yesterday that Snapchat is reportedly interested in a filing. Um, you know, given that there's a solid track record of tech IPOs in 2016, you might start to see some of these other unicorns come out of the woodwork. Yeah, I mean, like, if you remember last year, it was just a really not a good environment. Um, so last year, there were several t- big tech IPOs that kind of just, like, sputtered off, and it just kind of scared everyone off, you know? Like, it, I think one of the big ones was Square. Right. Right. So, so Square came out last, I think, November or something. It was last year. They priced below the expected range. It was in November. They priced at nine dollars, and I mean the shares did jump on the first day, about forty-five percent. But the IPO pricing didn't really inspire a lot of confidence, and the stock even now hasn't really done much of anything. Like it's, it's just basically just traded flat and within the certain range within the past year. Fitbit also kind of fizzled out at the first few months. Um, I mean, same thing. It kind of had like a decent showing initially, but that even right now it's trading below the IPO price of twenty dollars. Yeah. To your and to it, your point it, about it, wanting to stay on the sidelines for the first six months or so, right? Get a better sense of the business, see a couple yeah. different quarters of and reports. Mean, and like, let's not even talk about GoPro. I mean, like, God, <laughs> GoPro is just like, you know, <laughs> I mean, I was never a fan of GoPro, but anyways. So like, in, in contrast, Nutanix, they increased their price range, then they priced above that range, and then they jumped 130% on the first day. <laughs> uh, you know, so I think it really shows that the market is warming up to these new issues in tech. And I mean, think, and like even Nutanix was a victim of this whole like staying away because they, they initially filed their S1 registration statement with the SEC back in December. And they basically waited they, 10 months, right? Yeah, they waited like nine months. And in, in the meantime, they raised, They took out a loan just so they could wait longer. They took out a $75 million loan just so they could wait longer. Like, they took it out from Goldman Sachs, who was an underwriter for the IPO. And then, you know, through the IPO, they raised about $220 million. But the point is just, like, they wanted to wait so bad. But, you know, of course, they still need cash. So, you know, which is the whole point of the IPO, right? But they, they just took out some money just to, like, not go public <laughs> just because the market was just so bad. And now they're, you know, it seems like that patience has paid off because obviously the, the stock has done very well and they raised a ton of money because the pricing of the IPO came out higher than expected because, you know, presumably there's strong institutional demand. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think this is definitely warming up. Um, you know, you mentioned Snapchat. I think Dropbox has also been looking to go public for several years. Um, maybe even Uber, God forbid. <laughs> um, <laughs> that would be a show for sure. Maybe four. Who knows? Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm, and of course, like you have all these VCs that are just like anxious to get paid, so like they want these companies to go public because they want their, you know, they want to cash out too. So I think there's a pipeline of like people that are just like sitting there waiting, and I think this IPO shows that maybe it's maybe the water's warm, maybe they can jump in. Yeah, well, we will happily cover them as they do. These are always fun shows to do. Uh, anything else before I let you go, Evan? No, I think uh, I think we covered the hit all the big pieces. Awesome. 
Well, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you just want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. You can always tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, or you can check out the Fool's family of shows at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.